Our text for this morning as we're getting started here is from Zechariah chapter 1. And we're actually going to be looking at verses 3 and 6 this morning. You remember last week we talked about verses 1 through 6 as a whole. And now I want to deal to this morning with a particular doctrine that we need to discuss as we look at verses 3 and 6. All right, so this morning is going to be a little bit heavier than we normally have in here because we're going to deal with something that's going to come up as we look at these verses. So I want to read these for you here very quickly and then we'll open with prayer. So listen to these verses, verse 3 and verse 6, starting with 3. And you shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Then verse 6. Surely my words and my statutes, which I have commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And they repented. And they said, just as Yahweh of hosts has purposed to deal with us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. We're going to look at the relationship between these two verses this morning. But before we do that, let's ask God to bless our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us this morning and that you would open our eyes so that we can see what you have to teach us. Lord, there's some difficult stuff here that we're going to deal with this morning, and I pray that you would help us to understand, help us to rest in your great truth here. And we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so there were questions after Sunday school last week about the relationship between these two verses. And I thought the questions were so important that it was worth spending a whole session this morning dealing with the questions. In verse 3 of Zechariah 1 here, we have God, through the prophet Zechariah, commanding the people of Israel to repent and turn to him. And so what we have in verse 3 is the responsibility of human beings to turn to God. And then in verse 6, we have another teaching. And in verse 6, we have, God says, My words and my statutes, did they not overtake your fathers? That is, did not my word overtake the rebellious, sinful generation before you? Because remember, we talked last week, if you were here, that the generation before the Israelites that Zechariah is speaking to here was a very sinful generation, and because of their sin, it resulted in the Babylonian exile. And God is saying here that after the exile, when they realized their sin, the word of God overtook them. The word of God caught up to them, and it got them, and they repented. And so here we have the teaching that the word of God never returns empty and always accomplishes what God wants it to do. And that's the sovereignty of God here, the sovereign grace of God at work in this passage. And so in verses 3 and 6, we've got two major teachings of Scripture, don't we? We've got the responsibility of man to turn to God, and then we have the sovereign grace of God. And the question last week after we got done with the lesson was, 
how do you put those two together? Have you ever wondered that? Yeah, I'm sure you have. I know you're not going to nod your head. We're all Presbyterians here. We don't usually nod our heads or raise our hands, but I know you agree with me in your minds, right? You have wondered this question, and so have I. And so I want to deal with this question this morning as how we're going to deal with this. Now, here's the thing. We've got 40 minutes to do this. Don't think we're going to cover everything there is to cover about this question, but I want to give us an introduction to this issue so that we can better understand God's word because we find these two great truths sprinkled all the way throughout scripture. And so first thing that we're going to do this morning, if I can put that marker, I'll use a different one. The first thing I want to do this morning is I want to preface our discussion of sovereign grace and human responsibility by distinguishing two very important things. Okay, the first thing that we need to distinguish is a contradiction. and a mystery. Sometimes, I think, Christians tend to think of these two things as the same thing. A contradiction and a mystery is the same thing. That's what some Christians tend to think. That is not at all the case. Now, Adam and I both studied logic in our undergrads, and I don't know how much that Adam remembers formally from his logic training, but I just finished my undergrad less than a year ago, so I still have it fresh in my mind. And one of the things that I think is really important as we deal with this discussion, and not just this discussion, but any doctrines of theology, whether we're talking about the two natures of Christ or the Trinity or anything like that, <laughs> we need to make sure we understand the difference between a contradiction and a mystery. A contradiction is defined like this. This is the law of non-contradiction as defined in logic. And you're going to see what I'm talking about here and why this is important. The law of non-contradiction says this. It says X cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same sense. All right? That's the law of non-contradiction. This is very important for any discussion in any realm of any field, theology, science, philosophy, anything. Something, in this case X, cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same sense. So let me illustrate for you what, what I'm talking about here. What, is, what does this law mean practically? Well, let's say I replace X with God. God cannot be real and not real at the same time and in the same sense. If someone came to you and said, God is real, He's a real being. He truly exists. And then in the next sentence they said, and God is not real, and he doesn't exist, and he's not a real being. What would you say? I think... You're crazy. Yeah, you would say you're crazy, right? You're irrational. You're incoherent. You just said God exists, and then you said God doesn't exist. That doesn't make any sense. You contradicted yourself. See that? That's the law of non-contradiction at work. We actually have this law built into our brains because we are rational beings. This is just a way to get it into words and put it 
on a whiteboard or put it in a textbook or something. Right? We've got the law of non-contradiction built into our brains because we're made in the image of God. God is a rational being. God thinks logically. God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. God doesn't act in contradictory ways. Scripture says he doesn't lie. He doesn't say one thing and then say the exact opposite thing. He doesn't contradict himself. The Word of God doesn't contain a single contradiction, whether historically or scientifically or theologically or philosophically. Okay? You have a question, Robert? Yeah, that, that's so obvious that people might think it can't be. But last, just last night, see if this is not another, another statement of the same thing. Just last night, I was having a theological conversation with somebody, and she said, yes, Paul wrote such and such, and it is authoritative because it is the word. However, he didn't know what he was, what the implications of it were for 20th century life. Therefore, it is not authoritative for us. Mm. Would that be an example of that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That, that would be, well, it's a, it's a rejection of God being the author of Scripture, well, right? It's, it's saying, here it is and here it is not. Mm -hmm. It is authoritative and it is not authoritative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite common. Yep. Yep, that's right. You got he's got two problems there. He or she, or whoever was saying that. So yeah, that's right. Anyway, this is a very important law. You can see why it's so important, can't you? The law of non-contradiction. We we think like this intuitively in a lot of ways, but then if we don't understand the laws, we might break them sometimes because we're fallible creatures and we make mistakes and we'll violate. It. So that's why we always need to keep this law at the forefront. We understand it. But we don't always consistently apply it, as Robert pointed out. We, we are sinners and we make mistakes. So we need to keep this at the forefront in any discussion of anything to make sure we're not contradicting ourselves. Because again, God is a rational being. And he acts in rational ways because that is his nature. He doesn't contradict himself. He won't say one thing over here and then say the opposite over here. And if at any point the scripture seems to contradict... What's actually happening is that we have misunderstood one or both passages that seem to contradict. And so we need to use our brains, the brains that God has given us, to think carefully through the Word of God. And that's, that leads us here to our next thing to talk about. We've got contradiction and we've got mystery. These are not the same thing. A mystery, if you want a very simple, easy definition of a mystery, it is an un answered question. It's an unanswered question. An unanswered question. Think about this. Example of a mystery. We know that God is one in essence and three in person. We call that the Trinity. That's not a contradiction. We're saying God is one and not one, that is, he's one and three, at the same time, but in different senses. In one sense, he's one in his essence. In another sense, he is three in his person. So you can see that's not a contradiction. That doesn't violate the laws of logic. People call the Trinity a contradiction and illogical and irrational all the time. They're just flat wrong. If they say that, they don't know the laws of logic. It doesn't violate logic to say that God is one in essence and three in person. However, that doesn't mean that we can use reason 
to penetrate every angle on the Trinity and understand every aspect about it. There are still unanswered questions. The Trinity is not a contradiction, but there is a great deal of mystery in that teaching. <clears throat> Same thing with the two natures of Christ, and we could talk about more examples if we had more time. But all this to say, as we deal with this issue of sovereign grace and human responsibility, it is not a contradiction, even though there may be aspects of mystery within it. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, good. So let's take a look here at what I want to cover this morning, which is sovereign grace and human responsibility. I want to start, you don't have to turn here, but I want to start with Genesis 1 and 2, just very quickly. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the establishing, there's the eraser, we have the establishing of what is called in theology the covenant of works. Now, you, you're not going to find this term in Scripture, covenant of works, right? You don't find the word Trinity in Scripture either. These are just theological words that we use to describe teachings that are clearly in the Bible, okay? So when we talk about the covenant of works, what we're talking about is the fact that God in creation, when he made Adam in the Garden of Eden, established with Adam a relationship. And that relationship is a covenant of works. And in this covenant of works, God told Adam, he said, listen, Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you will die. And so what Adam was was placed in, in the Garden of Eden, was a, 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 a condition of probation. That is, he was placed in a position where it was up to him to choose whether he was going to follow God or whether he was going to follow sin. He was placed in a position of freedom. It was his choice. And God tested him to see which one he would choose. Which one did he choose? Evil or God? Thank you. Evil, that's right. You think about that one a little bit. That's right, he didn't choose God, he chose evil. And so he reaped upon himself the merits of his choice, which was eternal death. He broke the covenant of works. This is why it's called the covenant of works, because it is by human work that eternal life is merited. Adam had to obey. Westminster Confession of Faith 7.2 says that Adam had to fulfill the condition of the covenant of works, which was perfect obedience to God, and he didn't do it. He failed. He chose to follow sin, and therefore, he fell into sin by his own choice. And what we learn from the rest of Scripture is it wasn't just Adam who fell in the garden. It wasn't just Adam who got a sinful nature out of that deal. But all other human beings got a sinful nature because of Adam's fall in the garden. And the reason for that is because Adam was the representative head of the covenant of works. All human beings are included under this covenant. God made this covenant not simply with Adam, but with Adam and his posterity. That is Adam and all of his descendants, which includes each and every one of us. And so when Adam fell in the garden as the head of the covenant, everyone fell. Because he represented all of us. He acted on our behalf. 
And that's why we have a sinful nature. It's because Adam, Adam sinned in the garden and all of us fell with him. Now some people think that that's not fair. Like, well, wait a minute. Why should I be punished for something Adam did? Why should I have a sinful nature because Adam sinned in the garden? You ever wondered that before? Because I'm sure you've heard of this teaching before, at least in some respect. Like, why is, why is it that I got punished for what Adam did? And when we raise that question, we're showing our ignorance. I've raised that question. And when I raise that question, I'm showing my ignorance. Because when I raise that question, I don't understand how covenant works. I don't understand how God deals with people. In Scripture, whenever God deals with mankind, it is always by way of covenant. And in a covenant, there is always a representative head of the covenant, someone who acts on behalf of the people included in the covenant. That's how covenants work. In the ancient Near East, kings would make covenants on behalf of everyone in their kingdom. God is simply coming to Israel in the Old Testament and coming to us in the New Testament in the same way. He deals with groups of people. He deals with covenant communities. And so all of us being included in the covenant of works, yet whatever happens to the head of the covenant, namely Adam. And you say, well, I still don't think it's fair. I still don't think the way God did it is fair. Well, then you got a problem. Because when we get to the covenant of grace, the head of that covenant also acts on behalf of the people in the covenant. And that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as the head of the covenant of grace, which comes after the covenant of works, acts on our behalf as believers. And so if we don't like that Adam sinned, and all of us sinned, and he acted on behalf of us, then we should also not like that Jesus acts on behalf of us in the covenant of grace. See, it's the same logic all the way throughout Scripture. God deals with covenant people. And the head of the covenant acts on behalf of us. Listen to Paul's words here in Romans chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Romans 5 verses 18 and 19. This is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see Paul's logic here? Right? He's saying, just like Adam fell in the garden as covenant head, and every one of us reaped the curse of Adam because he was the covenant head, so, under the new covenant, Jesus acts on our behalf, and by one act of righteousness, the many will be made righteous. This is the great truth of Scripture. We need covenant, otherwise we don't have the gospel. So it is perfectly just and perfectly fair for Adam to fall in the garden and plunge the rest of us into sinful depravity, because that's how God deals with people, is in covenant. Now, getting back to the results of the covenant of works here. After the covenant of works, Adam falls in the garden and the curses come upon the world. Curses come upon us as Adam's posterity and his descendants. We are in a state of what we call total <coughs> depravity, aren't we? 
we're in a state of sin, a state where every aspect of our being has been penetrated by evil. And left to ourselves, Paul says in Romans 3, no one does good, not even one. No one seeks after God. And it's not because none of us are able to seek after God. Even after the fall, we still have free will. We can still choose what we want. But that's precisely the problem. That's exactly the problem that we... Our problem is we choose what we want because after the fall, apart from the grace of God, all we want is sin. No one does good because no one wants to do good apart from the grace of God, Paul says. We are, if you will, freely in sin because that's where we want to be unless the Spirit does something in us. And so the result of Adam's violation of the covenant of works is that all of us are freely in sin because that's what we want. And therefore, we are responsible for all the sin that we commit because we're doing what we want. And it's in the wake of the violation of the covenant of works that right there, not in the New Testament, but in Genesis chapter 3, God establishes what theologians call the covenant of grace. And from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation is the progressive unfolding of this covenant of grace. And here's what God promises in the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, God, God will fulfill all of the conditions necessary for salvation. See, this is very different from the covenant of works. In the covenant of works, the spotlight is on man. The spotlight is on Adam. What will man do? Will man choose God or will man choose evil? That's the covenant of works. In the covenant of grace, the spotlight is on God. What will God choose to do? Who will God choose to save? How will God fulfill all of the conditions? And it's in light of that that I want to read for you from Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from it. But listen to the Apostle Paul's words as he deals with this great truth of the sovereign grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the council. Of his will. Now, can you imagine being first century Christians and hearing something like that? Some of us have heard this passage so often we forget how significant that it is. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
What Paul is getting at here is that in the covenant of grace, the way to eternal life is completely different from the covenant of works. In the covenant of works, man merited eternal life by choosing God. And that didn't work. Even in a state of moral perfection, it didn't work. How much less would it work in a state of sinful human beings? In the covenant of works, man was saved by choosing God. In the covenant of grace, though, what Paul is teaching here is that man is saved because God chose him. Now, that's a sobering truth. That's a sobering teaching. And the instant anyone says something like that, suddenly questions start going around in our head. Whoa, wait a second, what? We're saved because God chose us? All of a sudden, we need a number of systematic theologies to be written to deal with all the implications of this kind of a teaching. And I think Paul knew that. And that's why in his epistle to the Romans, he deals with a number of objections, a number of questions that people may have about this kind of teaching. And so turn with me to Romans chapter 9, because Romans 9 is where Paul deals with this teaching and the implications of it. And this is huge. And Paul, I think, is so clear here. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. I'll wait for you all to turn there. Paul in the book of Romans, it's, uh, it's often called his sort of systematic theology. Now, Paul wouldn't have thought of it as a systematic theology, right? This is a letter written to the church in Rome. But it, it's kind of structured a lot like a systematic theology because Paul deals with doctrine in a progressive sort of way. First, at the beginning of Romans in chapter 1 and 2, he's dealing with the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God on sin. And then in Romans 3, he moves in and he's dealing with justification by faith. And he uses Abraham and some Old Testament examples of people who are justified by faith. And then he moves into Christian living and sanctification. And how, as Christians, we should still seek to do good works, even though Jesus has accomplished our salvation. There's so much good teaching in Romans. And now... In 8 and 9, Paul's beginning to move into the doctrine of the promises of God and divine election. This is often the way that Christians are exposed to the doctrine of predestination, right? You don't usually learn this on day one of Sunday school. First of all, you learn your sinfulness, then you learn justification, then you learn sanctification, and then you come to the more meaty doctrines of Scripture. And that's kind of the way that Paul presents his theology here. So let's look at Romans chapter 9, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now Paul here is treating the promises of God. He's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham that he would uh, give him an heir, namely Isaac. This is what the, uh, the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... And here's the kicker here. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I'm going to stop there. We're going to keep going in a minute, but I want to stop there and say, Paul here throughout Romans has been using Old Testament examples to describe how salvation works for all of God's people. That's why he talks about Abraham being justified by faith. The same as the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, justified by faith. And now Paul is dealing with an example from divine election. And he, I think, very strategically brings up the example of twins. Twins are about as equal as people get. Born at the same time, born from the same mother. And yet, anyone reading this in the first century, as well as even us now, we know that when it came to Jacob and Esau, Jacob was elect and Esau was not. Esau became the father of the nation of the Edomites and they were a very sinful, idolatrous nation that caused Israel a lot of trouble later on when they came back to the land of Canaan after Egypt. Esau was not elect. He was not chosen by God. But Jacob was. But they were twins. And Paul says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob and not Esau. They're about as equal as human beings get, and yet God chose this one and not that one. Now, if you have ever been engaged in any kind of writing enterprise, or if you have ever been engaged in arguing with someone about something, you know that it is common to think carefully about the objections that someone might raise to your argument. Right? That's what I'm always thinking about when I'm teaching. I'm always thinking, okay, what are people thinking? Will they object to what I'm saying, and how can I respond to that objection? Will they have questions about something? Well, Paul does that a lot. In Romans chapter 6, Paul just gets done dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and we are not saved by good works. And then he says, oh, by the way, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, he's asking, well, if we're not saved by works, then I guess we can just sin all we want because Jesus has got us covered. And he asks a question. He raises some, an objection that he thinks someone might offer to his teaching, and then he deals with it. Paul loves to do that. And this passage is no exception. Because Paul knows that if he says, here's two equal human beings, God chose the one and not the other, and it was completely unconditional. Neither of them had done anything good or bad. But God's purpose of election stood. He chose Jacob and not Esau. Paul knows that when he says that, a question is going to arise. And here's the question. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, what he's asking is, is God unfair? Hey, this sounds unfair. He chose Jacob and not Esau. That's unfair. They were about as equal as people come. Is there injustice on God's part? What's his answer? I see some shaking heads. Someone got to say something. Certainly not. Certainly not, right? My ESV says, by no means. The strongest negative Paul can give 
in the Greek language, at least the strongest negative he ever gives in Scripture. By no means. No, God is not unjust. Paul expects people to ask this question. You know, what's amazing is that in Reformed theology, we teach this doctrine that Paul's presenting here, that in salvation, God has chosen some and he has passed over others. And you know what the first objection that we always get is, hey, that's unfair. Paul here teaches it and then he expects the objection. That's the greatest assurance I can find that Reformed theology has rightly understood the Bible. Because we have to deal with the same objections as Paul. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul here, in defense of his teaching, lest his readers, lest we think he's just making stuff up, quotes passages from the Old Testament. And he says, listen, it is not unfair for God to give his grace to Jacob and to withhold his grace from Esau because grace and mercy by its very definition is unfair. You remember the definition of grace that you've probably heard before? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved. God doesn't have to give it to anybody. None of us deserve the grace of God. God could have, in the covenant of works, when Adam violated it and plunged humanity into sin, God could have said, well, that was your only chance. One strike, you're out. He could have said that, and it would have been perfectly just and righteous for him to do it. He's not required to give grace. And yet some people think that if God gives grace to some, it would be wrong for him not to give it to everybody. But see, that's a category mistake because grace by its very definition is unfair. It is only given to whomever the person giving it wants to give it to. He doesn't have to give it to anyone. And if he doesn't have to give it to anyone, he can give it to three, he can give it to five, he can give it to 100,000, it doesn't matter. It is his prerogative to give it to whom he will because grace by its very definition is undeserved. And Paul here appeals to the freedom of God to give grace whomever he wills. And he quotes the Old Testament. In other words, we don't just have Paul's word for it, even though that would, would be enough since he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he quotes the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Then Paul gives the conclusion, so then, election depends not on human will or exertion, but rather election depends on God who has mercy. God, at the foundation of the world, didn't get into his DeLorean and travel through the future to see what Jacob would do 
to see if Jacob would be faithful, to see if Jacob would do good works or bad works, to see if Esau would do good works or bad works, and then said, ooh, Jacob's going to be faithful. Esau's not faithful. Then hopped in his DeLorean, went back to the foundation of the world, and then said, okay, I'm going to elect Jacob and not Esau. No. Election is not on human will or exertion. It rests entirely on God who is mercy. And he can give it to whomever he wills because it's, by definition, undeserved. Now, lastly, verse 19, Paul expects another objection that someone might raise. Another question he brings up. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You understand that objection? He's saying, now wait a minute. If God withholds his grace from some and gives it to others, how does he still find fault with the people he withheld his grace from? How is it right to punish them? And he answers that objection. What will you say to me then? How does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Verse 20. But on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Here's how Paul's dealing with this question. He appeals to the freedom of God again. He says, listen, who are you to answer back to God? God has decided to give grace to some and to pass over others. It's heavy. Paul knows it's heavy. Paul knows it's concerning. Paul knows it spawns questions. And he says, don't object to this. Who are you to answer back to God? God has the right for his own glory to give grace or to withhold the grace. And Paul then gives us an answer for why God does this. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory in the vessels of mercy. In other words, Paul says there is a great deal of mystery in terms of why God has done salvation this way. If God was capable, why didn't he save everyone? Well, Paul says... Who are you to answer back to God? He knows what's best. He knows what is most right. But I can tell you one thing, and that is this, that when God brings justice upon the vessels of wrath, his glory is put on display. And when God brings grace on the vessels of mercy, his glory is put on display. In other words, all that God does in this realm of salvation predestination and election is all for his glory. 
see, predestination is not a contradiction. But there is element of mystery. Because ultimately, we have to humble ourselves and say, you know what, I don't know why God has done it this way, but I do know one thing on the basis of what Paul says here, that it is for his glory. And it is the very best thing God could have possibly done. I don't understand why. It's beyond my finite mind, but I know God's mind is bigger than mine. And I will trust the word of God, which clearly tells me this. And I will rest on God's eternal wisdom. There's mystery here. But I can tell you one thing. The greatest mystery. The greatest mystery that we should ask and not get an answer to is, Oh God, why did you choose me? Why did you choose me? I know it was not a result of anything I did. It was before I did anything good or bad. It's not a result of my will or exertion. You didn't check to see if I'd be faithful. I am faithful because you chose me. Why, God? Why did you elect me unconditionally? I'm so thankful to God that the covenant of grace is not a new version of the covenant of works. Many Christians think it is. Many Christians think that the covenant of grace is just a new version of this where salvation's up to us and God's just hoping that we make the right choice. But no, in the covenant of grace, God accomplishes salvation. God does it. And I am so thankful to him that he chose me and I don't know why. That's the greatest mystery, I think, in this whole teaching. Ask that question yourself and you know what that question does? When you realize, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are that way because God predestined you before the foundation of the world, you are supremely brought to your knees in humility. And it drives you to worship our God and our Savior in a way you'll never experience otherwise. Oh God, why did you choose me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your clear teaching in your word. Lord, there are inevitably all kinds of theological and philosophical questions that arise when we deal with your sovereign grace. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us not to be childish with this. Help us not to be irrational. Give us maturity to seek the coherence of your word. But Lord, we also pray that you would give us a spirit of childlike faith as we submit to the fact that there are indeed mysteries to this doctrine. Help us not to probe where we don't belong. Help us to have the same humility as the Apostle Paul where he says, I don't know why God has done this. But rather, I do know that you've done this for your glory. And Lord, humble us this morning as we see that we did not deserve your election. You didn't elect us because of anything we would do in the future or because of any faithfulness that we possessed in ourselves. You chose us in sinful depravity when we didn't want you at all. Lord, give us 
humility as we see that salvation is of the Lord and not of ourselves. Help us to trust in this magnificent, sovereign grace of yours. And through it, Lord, motivate us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning and to submit to your preached word from Pastor Adam. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.